following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, and this morning we're going to be looking uh, one last time um, at, at the same four verses we've been looking at for the last month. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, and believe it or not, there's actually a lot more that could be said from these verses, but um, we'll, we'll call this good. Um, so let me read, uh, starting at verse 1, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, We are coming to the, as I said, the last section of this. And uh, the, the, the big picture of what the author of Hebrews is writing here is that we are invited into a relationship with God, and he wants to reveal himself to us. God spoke to us in his son. And as we've seen, <clears throat> uh, the passage then gives seven different marks or characteristics or traits, things we should know about the son that uniquely qualify him to be really the supreme and ultimate revelation of God to us. Um, And I don't know if you feel like I feel sometimes. I feel that when we look at Scripture and we get these pictures of who God is, that God is, he is really different than us. And we describe that difference by a big word called transcendent. And it means that, you know, he's not like us. He's not part of this universe. He's not part of this world. He's really high and holy and uh, above and beyond us in so many ways. Um, when, when we describe God in those terms, um, it can feel like he's distant. Right? Do you ever feel that way? Like God's far, far away. And, um, you know, how can we really know him? Um, and, of course, you know, we read the Bible and we know what the Scripture says, but it can feel oftentimes, for me anyway, that, that God is this distant, far away being. You ever feel that way? Um, now, of course, some people on the other, other extreme, and, and uh, you know, I, maybe especially newer Christians or young believers, uh, get this idea that God loves them and, and they, that, that strikes them a real chord. And they, they talk about God and Jesus like he's their buddy, like he's their eighth grade chum, you know, like, yo, dad, <laughs> which is cute. Um, but is that really capture like the awesomeness of who God is? And so we find ourselves in this tension between um, wanting Jesus to be close and wanting to have a connection with him that's real and personal. But at the same time, these descriptions of God being um, holy and, and infinite and eternal and transcendent, and all these big words that we use to try to capture this God who's in many ways indescribable. So uh, how do you put those two things together? Well, the beauty of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is that it helps us uh, both keep the the awesomeness of who Jesus is, 
that he is in the highest and holiest place, as we'll see in a minute. Who he is is not just my eighth grade chum, right? He is God. But at the same time, uh, God's revelation to us through Jesus is personal. Right, the last thing we want to look at is how Jesus is a real and living personal revelation of God and what that means, uh, that, that he is um, God speaking to us. And, and in this case with Jesus, the, it's not just through a messenger, but the, the messenger, the person is the message. Right? Jesus is the message. And he comes to us in a way that we can know him personally, in a way that's intimate, in a, in a way that we can have relationship with him. So uh, this, this verse says that long ago God spoke to the prophets, through the prophets. God wanted people to know him. They wanted, he wanted them to know his purpose and who he is and his salvation. Uh, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. So what the prophets revealed was good, was awesome, is scripture, is authoritative. But God's revelation of son is, in, in his son is infinitely better Right? What we get in Jesus is the whole package. Um, not just words passed on through a message, but, but Jesus, the person, is the message. Uh, so this morning, we want to, as we think about Jesus revealing God to us in, in person, in a personal way, we want uh, to think about a couple of questions. The first one, how exactly does Jesus reveal God in his person, in his being? How, by coming to earth and becoming a human being, did Jesus uniquely communicate something about God's character and nature to us? Um, this is important because if we want to know God, we want to have the accurate and clearest and truest picture of him. And so Jesus w- is the means by which we can do that if we see how uh, in his life he reveals the Father and God. Uh, secondly, though, uh, we want to ask the question, how, how is this revelation in the Son, how does this bring God to us in a way that's more personal? Right? Um, God doesn't want to be distant. And, he, and in, in fact, even though he's beyond the realms and outer edges of the universe, he wants to be very near and close to us. So, um, so how does Jesus help us uh, know God and relate to him in a way that's uh, deeply personal <clears throat> and intimate and real? So that's, those are the two kind of questions we want to attempt to answer this morning from Scripture. So let's first of all look at who Jesus is and his being, how, how it is he, he is uh, the, the revelation of God. And, and what we find in Hebrews 1.3 is it's very clear that Jesus is eternal God. Uh, so it describes it this way. We'll jump all the way down to verse 3 where it says uh, these two short phrases that are uh, in parallel that describe Jesus uniquely. And it says that, uh, first of all, that he is the... Um, the radiance of God's glory, the radiance of God's glory. Secondly, he is uh, the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, so we're going to do, and for those of you who are linguists, you'll love this. The rest of you will probably fall asleep. But I want to give you some, some word study here because these words are so packed with meaning. And so we'll try to do this quickly, but let's go through uh, these key words and, and unpack their meaning so we can really understand what this is saying. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> Uh, the two phrases are parallel and are really communicating the same thing. Two ways of, of describing in the same way who Jesus is. Uh, first, he's the radiance of God's glory. Uh, let's start with the word glory. What is God's glory that he's radiating? It says he's radiating God's glory. What, is, what exactly is God's glory? 
Well, here's the answer. I have no idea. <laughs> okay, that's a really hard one to, to define. And theologians and commentators and all kinds of Christians have tried to capture uh, a clear definition of God's glory, and it still remains quite fuzzy for us. And the problem is that, by definition, God's glory is something that's describing the splendor and wonder of this transcendent, infinite, eternal God. Right, so how do you describe that? He's so far beyond and, and above us that the wonder of who he is is really beyond what we can wrap our minds around. Uh, so I can't exactly tell you what God's glory is. However, uh, we, we could look at it this way, that it really is, what, whatever all it is, it is the beauty and majesty of his entire being. Okay, the beauty and wonder and majesty of his entire being. So imagine uh, uh, you, you got the chance to see a spectacular diamond. Uh, one time I got to go see the Hope Diamond, and it's this massive thing. It's about this big around, and it's, it is spectacular. It's not clear like a regular diamond. It kind of has this bluish tint, uh, and uh, it's been you know, cut and shaped to just bring out this incredible beauty, and the light radiates off it, and they have it set in this setting that's really spectacular. Um, and uh, it's, it's dazzling in its beauty. It's magnificent in its size. Uh, it's splendid in its unique color. Uh, and everything about it radiates glory just in being what it is. Right? So if I was to say, describe the glory of that diamond, I don't know that I could describe it, but it, it is the, the sum total of everything that, that that beautiful rock is. Well, so it is with God. Everything about him radiates glory uh, in just being who he is. So that's what we mean by his glory. It's it's all of the, the majesty of his being, the splendor of his character, the beauty of his radiant goodness, uh, the wonder of all his attributes, all are his glory. And it says here that the, the sun is the radiance of that glory. So what is radiance? Uh, the word can have two different meanings. One is the idea of something shining out from a source. So it would be something like saying that the light is the radiance of the sun that the light beams that come out and hit the earth are, are is the radiance of the sun. Uh, the sun is the source of the light. The beams are the light that shine forth. Uh, in some ways, it's the same thing, right? The essence of the light and the essence of the sun are, are one in the same thing. Uh, at the same time, they are, they, are, um, they are different aspects, right? They're, they're somehow distinct, the sun from its, its light. And that that's, gets close to what he's describing here. Um, maybe the second meaning, though, would be more clear for us. It can also be taken as a reflection. So like a reflection in a mirror is the, the radiance or the reflection. When I, when I look at my beautiful, lovely, handsome face in the mirror, uh, such as it is, uh, in the mirror I get the exact reflection, the exact, exact representation in every way of my face. Right? Uh, and sometimes I think, oh, this must be a bad mirror. <laughs> it makes my nose look really big. <laughs> Right. Uh, or it could just be that that's really me, right? Um, man, that, that face looks funny. It must be one of those goofy circus mirrors, right? Or it's just the way I really look. Um, it's a reflection. It's an exact copy, exact uh, replica of my face. Um, so in the same way, uh, uh, he's saying that the son is the exact reflection, the perfect exact reflection of the father. Um, um, uh, the, the difference, though, would be that in this, this mirror image, uh, a mirror just reflects our outward face. It really doesn't reflect the depths. 
But what he's describing here, he says it's, uh, he, he, he radiates uh, the, the very glory of God to the very depths of his nature. He reflects that. So imagine you had a mirror that could actually not just show you your face, but it could, it could reflect who you are to the very depths of your heart and being and soul, right? Now, if I think it's scary to look at my face, I, I don't know if I really want to see a mirror that showed the depths of who I am. Uh, that may be something I don't really want to see. And maybe it's God's grace that we can't. But, but it says that Jesus is this. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact and perfect reflection of the Father's nature to the very depths of his being in every way. Right? So, um, so, so what the author's point here is that uh, he, he, he is God. Right? He's a reflection. He's the image. He's the radiance of his glory. And every fiber of his being. Uh, second, second phrase, he goes on to say that he is the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, again, some more fun Greek words that we need to study. First, first Greek word, this is a fun one, is the Greek word, uh, or the word for the exact imprint. The exact imprint. And that word is actually the Greek word character. Right? I bet you didn't know you knew Greek, right? Same word we get our word character from, and it, it really... Uh, in this, uh, in, the, in the original Greek thought, has the idea of an image that was an exact copy of the original. So back in those days, they made coins. The Romans and the, lots, lots of peoples made made coins, uh, and they make it very similar to the way we do today. They would take a, a blank, a, a disc of silver or gold or some precious metal, and they would take that disc and they would put it on a die. And the die would be a hard metal that had etched into it or engraved into it uh, an image, usually the picture of like Caesar or sometimes some other crazy one of the Roman Greek gods. And uh, they would put the blank on one with the, the die on one side. They put another die on top with another image. And then they take a big hammer and they strike it really hard. And it imprints the, the die image onto the, the, the blank, right? And, and it was said to be... Uh, the, the image that you got was the character, right? The exact copy, uh, replication of the original, right? So what you got on the coin was the exact imprint of what was on the die, right? Piece by piece, mark by mark, character by character, an exact and perfect imprint. We would we would say it's a carbon copy. That's kind of our equivalent. So he says the sun. Uh, is said to be the exact and, and perfect imprint or stamp of God's nature. All right, one last word, the word nature. Uh, here, the, the word nature, uh, if you know Greek at all, it's hypostasis. It's the very essence of who a person is. Right? The essential nature and attributes that make a person who they are. Now, here's a question for you. Uh, turn, to, turn to the person next to you and describe the very essence of who you are. <laughs> uh, uh, well, right, that, that's tough, right? Well, that, that's what the word means. If you got down to the really depths of who you are, your character, your personality, your nature, your makeup, who you are, that's, that's your nature. That's what he's talking about here. Uh, it might be for, hard for us, maybe impossible for us to do that uh, thoroughly about ourselves, but Scripture does that about God, Right? Uh, the Bible gives us glimpses of God's essential nature, who he is. Now, we don't know everything that he is, and much of what we do know is really beyond our full comprehension or ability to describe. But we do know some things about him. 
He is in his, in his nature spirit. He's eternal. He is infinite in power and wisdom. And uh, he's everywhere present. Right? He's transcendent. He's not tied up with his universe. He's outside of it. Uh, we can speak of his love, of his being the uncreated, self-sufficient being who's dependent on no one else, uh, who's truly eternal without beginning or end. Um, we can talk about him being holy. And you can go on and on down the list. These are his nature. This is who he is at the core of his very being. Uh, and the point is this, that whatever qualities make up God, make him uniquely who he is, what he's saying here is that those qualities are imprinted perfectly in the character and nature of the Son. Right? He's, he's the imprint of God's nature, the perfect reflection of all those qualities and attributes, exactly and completely stamped upon his own being and nature. Okay, there's not, a, there's, there's not another way you could say more clearly, directly, and accurately, the Son is God, uh, right? Right. Uh, Everything that the Son is, God is. Everything that, the God, that God is, the Son is. Exactly, perfectly, in every possible way. That's what he's picturing here in these phrases. Uh, what's fascinating about this, though, is he's also implying something else. He's saying that, that God and, and the Son are both divine, holy God. Uh, but he also makes a very uh, interesting point here that we, we also must, must mention and that is that they are the same but distinct, right? Uh, not only is he saying that God is the Son and the Son is God, but he's also saying that God the Father and God the Son are distinct and separate beings. Uh, now, by that he doesn't mean there are two gods who are like twins or, you know, two gods who are like partners. Uh, he's not saying that because uh, they're the exact representation. One is the perfect match of the other. So they're not like twins, Right? Uh, rather, they're two distinct beings who together share fully and equally in the essence and full nature of who God is, his nature and his character. Now, you may say, well, that's a lot to take out of these four words, right? How do you get that? Well, um, notice this. In both examples, there is an exact replication of one in the other. Right? So one is the radiance of the glory. One is the reflection in the mirror. In the other image, one is the exact imprint or stamp of the original. Um, uh, it's describing uh, them as, as essentially the same, right? Perfectly matched. But at the same time, they are not the same, right? He's not describing God in two different, from two different angles. He's distinguishing them. Just like my face in a mirror is a perfect uh, and exact replica of my real face, at the same time, it's not my real face, right? If you punch my reflection in the mirror, I'm not going to feel any pain, right? If you punch me, the reflection's going to just laugh. Well, no, actually, it's going to do what my face does, right? They're not the same. They are separate and distinct, right? Likewise, the image on a coin may be the exact and perfect replica of the die in every tiny detail, but the coin is not the die. They're two separate and distinct things, so what the author describes here is a God who has one essential glorious nature, but this nature is shared by two distinct and separate beings or persons. Right? One God, two persons. Uh, and this, of course, is the mind-boggling, uh, head-spinning 
doctrine of the Trinity. Of course, you know, we were, we're missing one piece. We got so far just two, but there's another one floating out there somewhere, the Holy Spirit, right? Um, but, but the author here uses language that describes the complex and confusing and hard-to-grasp doctrine of what we, we know of as the Trinity, that God is one being, one nature, one essence, um, but all three parts of the Trinity as distinct and separate persons Share together that nature. Uh, David Wells, in a short little book that called What is the Trinity, uh, captures this mind-blowing and difficult concept we call the Trinity this way. He says, This much is certain. Had the Christian faith merely been a human invention, Christians would never have come up with a doctrine of the Trinity. This doctrine is too thorny to understand and too difficult to explain for anyone to have deliberately fabricated it. Amen. Right? Amen. Who would come up with this, right? Um, it's, it's too hard, right? It's beyond really what our tiny little brains can come up with. There is no re- other religion that has anything remotely like this. No, this is not the fruit of our imagination, but a doctrine of the way things are. God is triune. Knowing him in his, triun- in his triunity is central to the Christian faith. So the Father and the Son are not merely different hats that God wore at different times. right? Uh, God the Son and God the Father were existing from before time throughout all eternity, one God in, in, in three persons. One at, the, one at one and the same time, one being... The exact and perfect, each the exact and perfect reflection of the other in the very depth of their being. And at the same time, one unchanging, eternal, infinite God. Okay? There's the doctrine of the Trinity. So you can go home and talk about that over lunch and have some good deep discussions, right? As you explain to each other the Trinity. Um, now, of course, I, I can't really explain it. I don't, I don't even pretend to understand the depths of it. Uh, my brain kind of shifts from one, like God's just one, to God's like three, and it just, I can't really hold both. Um, but but I, I do know this. Uh, the author of Hebrews believed this, and he deliberately uses this kind of language to capture the oneness and the, and the separateness of God simultaneously. And these pictures beautifully portray what he believed about God. Uh, uh, God and, and on top of that, through this, it, it is the basis for God's great revelation to us of Himself and His Son. Right? Without without this understanding of the Trinity, that that, that God the Son and God the Father uh, are are the same. That when Jesus came, incarnate Son of God, He came fully with divine nature, and so that is how He was able to uniquely reveal God to us. As it says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, in one who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And that's who Jesus is, right? Um, and he doesn't name Jesus specifically, but he's talking when he, when he says in these last days, he's referring to the event when the son left heaven, came to earth, was, was united with human flesh, right? In what we call the incarnation, where he was born, baby Jesus, uh, the divine nature was united in some other mystery I don't even want to talk about this morning, where God's nature was united with human nature. 
and that was Jesus. And he came to reveal to us uh, God. Um, so, so with that, we, we kind of answered the first question, you know, who is this Jesus that he could reveal God to us? So now the second question, how does the Son speak or bring God to us in a way that we can know and relate to him, in a way that is personal and intimate, right? Or you could put it this way, how does the revelation of his nature in the person of Jesus make a relationship with God personal, practical, and experiential, Okay, and what I mean by personal, practical, and experiential is that um, God doesn't want to be a million miles away. He wants us to encounter him, to experience him in real intangible, practical ways. Um, now, it's important here to distinguish between the means of relationship with God and the practice or experience of that relationship. Okay, what I'm not talking about this morning is really not the means or how, how we enter into a relationship. That is done... Uh, as we talked about last week, uh, when, when, when the Son, through his own blood, made purification for our sins. And God reconciled us to, to I mean, Jesus reconciled us to the Father. Right? That's language of restoring relationship. Because of sin, our relationship with God was broken and we were distant. But through the means of his blood, Jesus brought us into relationship with the Father. And here's the cool news. No matter how much you feel like it, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are in relationship with God. No matter how far away he may seem, the truth is he is so close, he is in your skin. Right? He is in your heart. He is in your life. So regardless of how you feel, it doesn't change the re- reality that you are in a deep and personal and significant relationship with God. Um, so that's the means. But what I'm going to talk about this morning is, is, is the practice or experience of that relationship. Right? It, it's a truth, but God wants us to, to, to live in that truth. He wants, us to, uh, he wants it to be personal. And that's why he sent Jesus in person uh, to uh, reveal us to him in a way that's real and practical. And through the revelation of Jesus as the incarnate son, we could experience relationship with the Father and the Son and with the triune God. Um, God spoke, Jesus spoke God to us by living life as a real person. Uh, he, he wrapped this glory of God that he possessed, that he's the radiance of, and the fullness of this divine nature in a real human life. He came as a real human being. And everything Jesus said Everything that he did, and most importantly, everything that he was as a person, is revelation. It's speaking God to us. It's showing us God in a way that, that we can grasp. Um, and, and back to you know, my beginning question, because he's fully God, there is a vast chasm and inequality in this relationship. He is infinite, eternal, transcendent, and uh, indescribable. Uh, but because Jesus is fully human... There is a vividness and reality to Jesus that brings God close in a way that is deeply personal and intimate. Right, so how does this work in real life? How does this work in your life and mine? These big ideas and concepts, this infinite, indescribable God uh, who's beyond anything I can imagine, how can I not help but feel distant and even invisible in the sight of such a God? Uh, well, the answer and the good news is that in the person of Jesus, 
who is the infinite, invisible, indescribable God, he brings, he brings God near to us. Uh, so there's a couple obstacles, a couple of problems that we need to overcome in our thinking that keep us from really experiencing fully this relationship in a real way that's, uh, that we can, we can grasp, right? So first obstacle is this. Um, probably most of us think, you know, this would be so much easier if Jesus was actually here and in person. You ever feel, felt that way? Like, you know, if, Jesus, if we could just invite Jesus one Sunday to come to CCF and stand up here and actually preach to us instead of Tim rambling on and on and on, right? If Jesus would show up, this would make it so much easier. And afterwards, we could go shake hands with him and give him a hug and, uh, and hear his voice, right? Wouldn't that make it easier? Well, it seems like it would, but the reality is it, it doesn't work that way. And the reason we know it doesn't work that way is it didn't work that way for his disciples, Right, Jesus came to earth, he was in a body, he every day was wandering around radiating the glory of God. Right? And what, what, what did his disciples do? They go, wow, you're God. Right? No, they said, they said crazy things. Right? They said, you know, when you come in your kingdom, can I sit at your right hand? <laughs> it's all about me. Right? Clear evidence that they didn't really get who Jesus was. Or Peter saying, uh, Jesus, no, this whole dying on the cross thing, let me rebuke you, right? You're wrong on this one, right? They missed it. Uh, they could see him. They could touch him. They heard his voice. They sat at his feet. It was, in, in some sense, personal. But for many of those who saw him, they flat out rejected him. Most of the crowd just didn't get him, and even his disciples were largely com- uh, perplexed and confused about Jesus, See, the problem is not that we cannot see Jesus live and in person. Uh, the disciples saw him live and in person every single day, but, but they didn't get it. They didn't really see Jesus. That is, they didn't really understand how he was revealing the glory of God until when? Until after the cross, right? Until after the Holy Spirit came. So the good news for us is this. Because of the cross... Because of the reconciling work of Jesus that now puts us in relationship with him, and because he has sent the Holy Spirit and we are, we are indwelt, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, he's in us, um, we now have everything we need to see Jesus and to get him, just like the disciples. Right? Because it really wasn't until after Jesus was physically gone that he became real to them. The same is true for us. And those stories for us are the same memories of the, of the apostles. And as we reflect on those, Jesus wants to come alive in those stories through the work of the cross and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and his role is to mediate Jesus to us. So we know that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he's now seated in his still resurrected body, at the right hand of God. Right, so how can Jesus be at the right hand of God and in us? Well, through the agency or through the, the transmission, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is in us, and he brings to us the person of Jesus. So he is real and he's with us. And um, that's everything we need to experience him in relationship. second problem we need to overcome Uh, is that we largely misunderstand the point of the gospel witness. In fact, oftentimes I think we really misunderstand completely the whole point of Scripture. 
uh, and to you know, illustrate this, uh, several years ago, uh, there was somebody coming to CCF, and they would they would regularly come up and tell me after my sermon, give me a little ser- sermon critique, which I love, uh, and he would say, you know, you know, I know you teach the Bible and all, but but I really need you to tell me what to do. Like too many times you don't, it's, you know, you're not applying scripture. I need to know what to do. Now, uh, we live in a world, in a time where we've talk, we talk a lot about the Bible needs to be relevant. Uh, and what we mean by that is, is I want the Bible to be an instruction manual for life. You know, I want, I want, I want God to tell me how to make my life better. And the logic kind of goes like this. Jesus came to earth and he lived this perfect life and he was very successful. And if we just follow his example, we can be successful. Right? So just tell me what to do. And I'll I'll be honest, this is the easiest kind of preaching. I could get up here and say, the Bible says this, so you need to go do this, this, and this, and you'll be successful. And people go, oh, yay, I love that. I'm going to go do that, right? Of course, they don't ever do that, but they feel good about it because I know what I should be doing even though I'm not. That's not really why Jesus came, though. Jesus did not come to be your role model or your example. That's what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews Hebrews is telling us here. He says what? Long, Long ago, in many various ways and means, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us through his son. He sent him to be revelation, not example. Right? Do you get the difference? Right? Jesus did not come to be your role model to show you how to live life better. Because I'll tell you, you can't do it like him. Right? It's not as simple as just saying, well, you know, Jesus walked on water. Oh, I got this. It doesn't work that way. And even the simpler things like loving people and serving, it's just not as simple as following his example. Right? That's not why he came. Now, it's true that uh, he did live life successfully and he lived a perfect, righteous, and holy life. And certainly everything he did is an example for us, right? So we want a standard for righteousness and a standard for godly living. Sure, he is that, but that's not the main point. He came primarily, primarily, chiefly to speak God to us, to show us and tell us who God is and what he is like, to reveal the character and nature of God, so we can know him in a personal, real, and, and, and thriving way. Uh, so let's, let's look at just one example of what this can look like. Uh, let's take a story out of Mark chapter 8. We won't read it, but um, it's, it's one of the stories where Jesus feeds like huge crowds of people. This time I think it was 4,000. Uh, and, and it says that uh, this crowd had been gathered and they had been listening for Jesus teach for three solid days. Okay, so this is one reason we really don't want Jesus to show up. Because <laughs> if he teaches, it's going to go till Tuesday. Uh, I get over with by lunch. Um, so, so Jesus has been teaching for three days, and he looks at them, and, and they're getting, the crowds are getting hungry, and they're out in the middle of the wilderness, far from McDonald's or Subway or whatever. Um, no cow pot. Uh, and so they, uh, he, it, says, it says Jesus has compassion on them. Uh, why does Jesus have compassion? Well, partly because uh, he had lived his life in, in, in human flesh and he had experienced hunger. Right? He'd gone 40 days and 40 nights without food in the wilderness. So uh, he wasn't like some king looking down on his pathetic subjects going, wow, it must be really miserable for those guys to be hungry. I have no idea what that's like. No. 
he had experienced hunger. And so he, he has a sympathy. He can connect. He can share with their feeling. And he has compassion on them. Uh, and he, he, he seeks to do something about it. Um, certainly that is an example for us to follow. And as we see need around us as human beings who also know what that need and that hurt and that pain feels like, uh, we should be sensitive to those around us. And we should respond with compassion when we see people in need, in pain, in, in, in struggling. Um, and, we, and it should move us to action, to help in some tangible way. Not just to say, wow, it must be, <laughs> be terrible to be you. No, we're supposed to help. But this is exactly where the story moves from example to revelation. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus says to his disciples, well, these guys are all hungry. You feed them. And what do they say? Uh, Jesus, you've got to be kidding. Right? There's thousands of them. And we have like four loaves of bread and a couple of fish. This is impossible. There's no way, humanly speaking, we can do this. See, in this point, the disciples were bright enough to know we can't just follow Jesus' example. Right? We can't do this. We can't meet their need. But Jesus does what only God can do. And, and effortlessly, effortlessly, it, it happened so instantly that maybe the crowd didn't even know what happened. Jesus feeds thousands with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Okay? Is this an example for us to follow? No. Right? Don't even try. All right? This is not the point. It's revelation. He is saying to us, this is who God is to you. He's a God who has incredible compassion and heart for you. He sees your struggles. He sees your hurt and your pain. And he cares about you. But beyond that, he can do something about it in a way no human being can. Right? It's impossible. But with God, it's not impossible. He sees, he cares, and he is able to solve all of our problems and meet every need. That doesn't mean he doesn't test our faith, and sometimes he's incredibly slow with all this, right? But he wants to take care of us. It is his heart, and Jesus is revealing to us who he is. So instead of reading this story as an example to copy, we need to enter into this story and see that Jesus is speaking to you and I, his heart and his character. He's communicating to us who he wants to be to us in our relationship with him. He wants to be a God who is sensitive to our needs and who has compassion on us and who is more than able to help and solve our problems. But it needs to go even beyond that. Right? We can know that as a doctrine, as a truth. That is not enough. It needs to go to, 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 to the place where it is a personal experience with him. Right? Where we enter into that with our real need and we come before Jesus with real needs and we say, okay, you know, I get that you can do that, but here's my need right now. And I, I need to meet you, and I need you to meet me in this place of need and struggle in my life. Uh, this has happened so many times in my life, and I'm sure in yours as well, but uh, one, one time this happened uh, was at the beach. Uh, not, a, not a terribly profound uh, thing, but it was a cool time when I experienced God meeting my need and feeling pathetic for my uh, feeling sorry for my poor pathetic life. Um, I was at the ocean in California and with our family on our first ever like family vacation. And it, the whole fa- family vacation was kind of a disaster at so many levels. Um, 
And this is one of the kind of the pinnacle of it all. I was in the ocean uh, body surfing with the kids. We're having a good time with the waves. And, and uh, being an idiot who really has never spent any time at the ocean, I was wearing my glasses uh, thinking, you know, well, I can't see anything without them. So, um, so I'm wearing my glasses, and it was the very end of the day, and I, I said, I'm going to go just do one more, one more dip, and I'm out there, and I'm body surfing, and this massive wave just t- comes along and rolls me up like, you know, like, like a sardine and just slams me to the bottom of the, of the beach, of the ocean, and poof, my glasses are gone. <laughs> And I am scrambling in the water, trying, looking, I mean, and I looked and looked and looked, and they were gone. Now, uh, at the time, we had four girls. Kashara, our oldest, was, was, uh, had her, 15, had her learner's permit, right? And Denise, who uh, had, during our vacation, had sprained both ankles severely and was in a cast. Um, and we had this big, huge Ford full-size truck thing with a long, big tent trailer behind it. So here's our options. I could drive the truck blind. <laughs> really a bad idea. Uh, Denise could, well, no, she can't because she can't push her clutch. She can't push the gas. She can't hardly walk. Or my 15-year-old can drive the truck, right? Uh, we're in trouble. And, and we looked, and, and it's like we just prayed, God, we have no idea what to do. We're in the middle of L.A., traffic and no money, um, it's like, God, we don't know what to do. We have to find those glasses. And we searched the beach. We combed up and down. Finally, it was getting dark, and we said, we, we need to go. So we start to leave, and we go to shower off at one of these uh, sh- shower things. And I don't remember who, who saw it, but there hanging on a post is this pair of glasses. Not my glasses, but a pair of glasses. <laughs> And they had clearly come out of the ocean because they were really scratched up, but I put them on, and they were like 95% my prescription. <laughs> right? <clears throat> That's the God we serve, right? The God we serve. He knows, and he cares, and he can do crazy, miraculous, impossible things. Right? And he wants to do those things, and the more impossible, the better, because he wants us to know him. But he wants to reveal himself to us in ways that we can experience and know, yeah, he's real, uh, and he's there. Uh, the passage ends, and let me just wrap up with this final kind of doxology. He says, after making purifications for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Uh, Jesus is none other than God the Son who came to earth, took on human nature in a human body, and lived a real life uh, to reveal God to us. He made purification for sins by his own blood. He rose and ascended as seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, but now he's there with a human body, Right, so the eternal God now has somewhat changed because now he has added to himself eternally uh, human body and human nature. So when he did that, did he in some way diminish his glory and being? Like, like there maybe this worry that now that Jesus is kind of just one of us, that somehow he's not like the eternal preexistent creator, sustainer of the universe. But the author assures us, no, that's not the case. He is still, he's still supreme. Right? He rose and ascended and he now... Uh, is superior to the angels, 
as much as his name is more excellent than theirs. And what is the name he has inherited? Well, it's the name he inherited before the beginning of the world. Uh, It's the name Son of God. But it's now also the name Jesus. He is now Jesus, Son of God. Jesus speaks to us of his humanity and his nearness to us. Son of God speaks uh, his name from before the creation of the universe. Uh, The Son, whom God appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Um, And our response to all this should be one of of both dear worship and adoration. We should stand in awe of God and Jesus. But at the same time, uh, as we will see in the book of Hebrews, he's a God who's like us who can come to us, who understands us in our weakness. Uh, He is king of earth and heaven, but he is also our friend, our guide, and one who loves us with a love deeper than a brother. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com dot o r g